0: tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Katherine Cruz. It was simply put, a bit of a rocky rollout, but a federal program to boost food sustainability in the islands may be about to turn a corner agricultural officials are set to award over $2.7 million to close to 600 small farmers and gardeners in order to grow more of what we eat. We talked to Sharon Hurd, who's the incoming director of the Hawaii Department of Agriculture, about her hope for the future of ag, as well as the delays with the microgrant process, as it's been a frustrating wait for the many who applied during the first two rounds. My thing is a very simple food sustainability Venn diagram.
1: You have two circles in a Venn diagram. One is marked what we grow, and the other one is marked what we eat. The more those two circles come together, the sweet spot, the intersection, is sustainability. That means we are eating what we grow, and we are growing what we eat. So I'm aiming to get that sweet spot bigger, and I think we can do that through programs like the microgrant, You fund the public and allow them to grow the food that they eat. That way they become more food sustainable. What we grow that we do not eat, we value add, we export, we preserve, we make use of it. What we eat that we do not grow, we have to import. You know, everybody knows we just won't grow enough rice to feed our population, that's true. So we just have to grow things that we do eat, or we have to eat things that we do grow. To me, that's a simple formula for sustainability. Food systems is a much more complex thing to tackle because you have things like labor, invasive species, transportation. Um, But I think we can all handle the grow what we eat. Well,
0: talk about the types of projects that were funded.
1: One of the major projects was fencing. In the food insecure communities, it seems evident that they need protection from Pigs mostly, but in other communities it's axis deer, and the fence has to be tall because axis deer are very skilled at jumping fences. So the the number one was fencing to protect the crops because no sense grow crops if the pigs come in and have you know their way with it. So with that and chicken coops, poultry type operations where you fence it in, but you have chickens that you can get eggs from. A couple of them were for raising goats so that you can have milk and then subsequently cheese. Many of them were for seeds, soil, composting, grading, preparing soil to make it receptive to growing. A lot of trees, fruit trees. We all know that it takes five to eight years to to bear fruit from a fruit tree, so it's better to plant it now. Those are the types of of projects that I remember.
0: So you had more than 7,000 applications. Uh, How many got funded and, and what was the breakdown?
1: 579 got funded. After we rank the proposals, remember now the USDA wants competition in this. So we went with the number of SNAP recipients in each county. If there were 30,000 SNAP recipients in the state of Hawaii, what percentage came from Maui County? What percentage came from Honolulu City and County, Hawaii County, and Hawaii County? And we took that percentage and we applied it to the ranking. So how much of this funding represents the percentage of SNAP. And so the number of awards, 579, reflects the most food insecure households in the state and also the percentage of SNAP recipients in that county.
0: I'm just pulling up the numbers here. This is 347 Ron Oahu, 67 on Maui, 32 Kauai, and 133 on Hawaii Island. But, yeah, you you had mentioned that in the first uh, go-around, you know, as you were trying to figure out how best to roll this out, there were people that just got disqualified because they did not follow directions and put a street address and use a P.O. box instead.
1: That's right. right. The second round was really based on where you live, not where you get your mail.
0: And then you also tried to uh, streamline the process by using gift cards, and then that turned out not to work with all the regulations in place
1: you know it wasn't a gift card so much what they call it is a declining balance credit card okay so we would top load that with say four thousand dollars and they would be able to purchase things that were on their approved proposal it was a fixed amount of words if you said you were going to buy a freezer we were going to audit your reports and your receipts that you did indeed buy a freezer the declining balance credit card however turned out to be after careful consideration not the level of risk management that not only the banks but also the federal government was a little bit iffy on it. Although they went with it, the declining balance credit card would have been easy for us, not so much for the risk management piece.
0: The folks that did uh, get awarded this time around, they've all been notified, and uh, you know, have the checks started going out?
1: No. Once you get notified, we need
0: a W-9 because
1: this is considered income. So once we get your W-9, we can start the contracting process. It's going to be e signed this year, and once you e-sign return, we send it to the Department of Accounting and General Services for certification and execution, and then you can send us your first invoice. The money's here. We have the funding. We send an email to everyone that was awarded, and the instructions are in the email. The next step would be submit your W-9, send it to the email that we provide. We also sent out an email to everyone that was not awarded and encouraged them to try for the next round. But as I said, at the top of the application for the next round, we're going to put a little box. Check this box if you've seen the video.
0: All right. Just want to be able to make sure that uh, those who apply have a higher chance of, uh, of getting to the finish line. <laughs> yes.
1: It was a little preachy. I think, you know, when I watched my own video, I think, and, and everybody did a great job. But I think we were a little preachy, you know, like, if you're thinking of doing this, don't do that because it's not a good project. You know, we kind of guided them through, and you could tell the people that didn't watch the presentation because those are the kinds of projects that they would post, yeah.
0: We've got this round then underway. What are you hearing from the federal government about a third round?
1: Oh, we definitely have a third round. This particular legislation was part of the 2018 Farm Bill. Farm Bill is good for five years or is effective for five years. So we'll have a fiscal year 22 round. We did 20, 21. Now we're doing 22. That's going to be rolled out around maybe spring. Again, slippery slope might be before, might be after. But we're targeting spring of 23. And then everybody takes a deep breath because the 2023 Farm Bill is being put together right now. We've asked our congressional delegation and they're pretty confident that this will be included. Lisa Murkowski over in Alaska is a champion of this as well. So if it's included in the 2023 Farm Bill, which fingers are crossed, it'll be effective from 23 to 27. Mm -hmm. So if we continue to get 2 million, and by the way, Catherine, with the 7,000 applications, The point we made to the congressional delegation was two million is great, thank you very much, but we need 35 million. So we're asking for that much money to be spread out over the five years, probably looking at more like seven to 10 million a year. But you know, if we get two million, we're happy. It's just the need demonstrated by the number of applications that came in tell us that there's a greater need than two million a year.
0: Is there anything you just want to share with our listeners out there, you know, now that you've been tapped to lead the Department of Agriculture at this point? I guess what I want to say is come work for the Department of Agriculture.
1: We are a good group of people. We do good things every day. We have many, many vacancies. and We're not the only state agency that has vacancies, but consider a job at the Department of Agriculture. We have so many opportunities for so many types of skill sets, Everything. You can be part of this grant team and help people grow food or Mm -hmm. part of the animal industry. We need vets. It's a skill that is tremendously lacking. We need engineers. You know, that's my message
0: the Department of Agriculture has had that, you know, by local. Mm -hmm, And I mm -hmm. think just the pandemic has taught us so much about the value of our local farmers. How are you looking at this crossroads, knowing that the interest that we got for these grants was so high?
1: I'm using the statistics provided by the National Association of Statistical Services. And what that says is that We have about 7,000 farms in a way. 93% are small family farms, and the other 7% are medium to very large farms. However, 50% of the food that we eat in the state is produced equally by the 93% and the 7%. So moving forward, we're going to be looking at assisting both sectors, the small family farm and the large farm, because they both contribute 50% to our food security. And we're going to do our best to always include the immigrant farmers, the native Hawaiian farmers, the Pacific Islanders, make sure that they hear that they have access to these types of grants. we're gonna do that through offering language services, outreach, Pacific Gateway is a great partner to us, help all ag, you know, try to reach everybody, the small farmer, the large farmer, and the farmer that maybe feels left out The federal government calls that the AANHPI, the Asian-American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Group. We're going to do our best to reach out to them.
0: That was Sharon Hurd, who Governor Josh Green has tapped to lead as Agriculture Director. She's been with the department for 14 years and more recently was with the Business Development Program Manager. And right now, we're going to have to take a pause from regular programming for a test of the emergency alert system. Stay with us. (music) on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz.
1: Oni hoa, ole hua,
2: oni hao, o ka hua, o o a, o molokai, o lanai, o
0: ma'u, o o hawaii. We have a story about a women's leadership workshop coming up later in the show. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about the only woman ever to have served as mayor of Honolulu. She was born in Bell, California in 1928 and held various government posts before her mayoral bid. She was the first Hawaii State Budget of uh, State Director of Budget and Finance during Governor George Ariyoshi's administration. And her election victory over incumbent Mayor Frank Fossey in 1980 was a surprise to many. She won by a landslide with 70 percent of the vote. She ran on a theme of fiscal responsibility, and she remained true to her word when she canceled the Honolulu. Lulu Area Rail Rapid Transit Project, a projected 23-mile heavy rail system that would have linked Pearl City to Hawaii High. In doing so, she returned over $5 million to the federal government, saying, Why spend $5 million on a system that won't be built? She only served one term from 1981 to 1985, and this morning we're looking for her name. Call 808 941 3689 or 877 941 3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag.
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareedHawaii.com.
0: Whale strikes can be a problem around this time of year. Away shipping companies may be ignoring speed limits in sensitive whale zones. That is the topic of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri is on the line with us today. Good morning.
4: Hey, Catherine. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year. So is it a new year for whales? (laughs) Share with our listeners what's your story about
4: yeah it's today's story it's it's really a a a data-driven story that shows that matson and Pesha, which are two of the the main shippers for hawaii right are among the worst in terms of following voluntary speed limits off the california coast now these are these are federally recommended limits of 10 knots or less during the sensitive whale seasons in those areas in these these shipping lanes off of Los Angeles and San Francisco, and they're there to protect endangered blue fin and humpback whales, which migrate up there from approximately May to December to feed every year. So they're they're getting struck, uh, fatally so, in in growing numbers. It's it's been worrying researchers who've reached out to various companies. Um, a lot of them have slowed down, but not. Matin and Pesha, or certainly not in any real meaningful way uh, like some of the other companies that access those lanes.
0: Do we know, though, if those uh, shippers have uh, hit any whales?
4: Yeah, we don't. And to be clear, there's nothing out there that specifically states Matin and Pesha, Matin and or Pesha have have hit, you know, such and such a whale on such and such a date. But what we do know is that these shipping strikes uh, these ship strikes are, are happening, uh, they're very prevalent, and that Mattson and Pesha are among the ships that are moving at very high speeds. Um, they have been going at the 10-knot or, or less uh, recommendation, which comes from uh, NOAA, uh, in Matson's case, it's 16 percent of the time over the past five years, and Pesha it is 11 percent of the time. And meanwhile, those companies have been going 15 knots or higher in these these very limited zones uh, for uh, like at least half the time. So basically, they are uh, they're not violating any mandatory rules, uh, but they are the worst offenders in terms of what. Both the federal government and these whale researchers are recommending, in terms of really curbing these fatal whale strikes.
0: So, what do the companies say about their speed?
4: So, I I managed to uh, have an exchange with Matson. Uh, Pasha did not respond for comment. But what Matson pointed to is Hawaii's very uh, constrained, quote unquote, just-in-time economy. You know. Many people know Hawaii doesn't have a lot of um, storage space on the island, if any at all. So they say, hey, we need to, you know, hold a tight schedule uh, and we're we're really beholden to just get things, you know, here on time because the shelves uh, in Hawaii, uh, you know, they they empty in a matter of days. It's also a, you know, an emergency preparedness type of an issue kind of coincides with. Now, what the researchers would say in response is that a lot of other companies face similar constraints in terms of you know perishable goods and what we're talking about is reducing from say like 13 knots to 10 knots in a zone where if you do that it impacts your schedules maybe maybe by a matter of hours uh, and you're talking about transits that that take many days across the Pacific
0: yeah so I guess though one way of looking at it if time is money right I mean you've got stevedores, out on the docks, uh, and then, you know, we do have store shelves that need to be stocked.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's just a question of how much uh, Mattson and Pesha would be willing and, and able to make some of these these adjustments uh, to all of those elements uh, of this, this it, you know, very complex business, how much they're really willing to kind of roll up their sleeves and make these adjustments similar to other major Shipping companies,
0: and Matson has invested a lot in faster ships, bigger ships.
4: Yeah, they, you know, as part of their uh, response to me, they did mention that they of they they're upgrading uh, several of the ships in their fleet, and they've got a couple coming down the line. Uh, and they said that that could create some sort of an improvement. Uh, they didn't specify how specify how much of an improvement. Uh, but they said that that might help them uh, investigate. I think just, it, you know, these, these researchers that are based largely on the West Coast have been frustrated uh, in that, that they said that so far it's kind of been ignored, their outreach in trying to really work with these companies that are serving Hawaii.
0: And, you know, we have heard some cases of injured whales that have been hit by ships.
4: Yeah, there was there's a big high profile case. It's it's featured in the story, uh, a, a whale off the coast of Canada that broke its back, and uh, the, yeah, it, it's it's definitely an issue. Some of these whales, not you know, of, of this bunch, some of them are winding up in Hawaiian waters as well.
0: All right, well, thank you, Michelle. Thanks, appreciate your time.
4: Thanks, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Marcel Honoré with today's reality check. You can read the story online at civilbeat.org.
5: Support cultural reporting on HPR.
6: Kumuhula Aulii Micho has worked for more than 30 years to bring back hula ki'i. The tradition involves using puppets to tell a story. It was almost lost after the missionaries banned hula.
3: It's a sitting hula where we bring the ki'i alive with chant, oli. And then as they awaken, they become the vehicles for the story
1: to be told through. I want to form relationships globally with other indigenous communities and peoples and their puppetry, because you go to Aotearoa, New Zealand, they have right. them. You go to Samoa, they have, you know, storytelling.
3: It's all we have, we're oral peoples.
5: Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org.
0: It's believed to be a first for Hawaii and the country, an office of wellness and resilience. Coming out of the pandemic, maybe it's a good idea. Governor Josh Green tapped Tia Roberts Hartsock as the first director of the newest state agency. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden here to talk about what the mission is exactly. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So
5: the state legislature last year passed a bill to establish an office of wellness and resilience. And that's a new state government office. And the goal is to address childhood trauma, mental health, and other social issues throughout the state. It will be temporarily housed within the office of the the governor as it gets going. And late last month, as you noted, Governor Josh Green nominated Tia Roberts Hartsock as the director. She's currently a project director at the State Department of Health's Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division, and she also chairs the state the state's Trauma-Informed Care Task Force, and that's a group that's working on initiatives and definitions to guide the state in addressing how to care for people. Hartsock has more than fifteen years of experience in what is called trauma-informed care.
7: Trauma-informed care is is an approach based on uh, a, a knowledge of how trauma impacts our behaviors, how it impacts our brain development. It is based upon the concept that trauma is pervasive and understanding how it it interrupts trajectories of brain development. Um, it also, that, that concept trauma-informed care, um, as basic as it can get, um, kind of speaks to the fact that trauma experiences inform how we show up, how we behave, how we um cope, how we manage stress. And so understanding what trauma does, being aware of how it impacts us both positively and and negatively, um, and understanding how to approach and respond to trauma survivors um, as to not trigger or re-traumatize them is part of the trauma-informed approach.
5: And the state of Hawaii is the first in the nation to set up a statewide Office of Wellness and Resilience. And there are efforts in states of similar structure, but the workload is typically split into different departments or divisions. And during public testimony on the creation of this office, many said they wanted to see the silos of cross-departmental interactions be broken down. And Hardstock hopes that, uh, you know, bringing this office to fruition uh, brings everyone together under one roof.
7: It's very exciting um, to be able to create this uh, vision moving forward with our unique, our unique gifts here in Hawaii, our unique, uh, what we already know that works um, in terms of uh, healing practices, cultural practices, in terms of um, how to create resilient communities. There are many projects that are working on that currently. Part of the vision um, that I have is to be able to create a, And collaborate to have a centralized effort uh, within this office to coordinate all the different initiatives that are happening in the Department of Education, in the Department of Health, Department of Human Services, in the judiciary, in nonprofits. All of these departments have their own little ways of implementing trauma-informed care.
5: And this Trauma-Informed Care Task Force has spent the last year and a half finding ways to approach trauma-informed care and identify how the state can better approach more specific issues throughout the criminal justice system and in social services. So Harsock says that uh, they'll be taking some research-based cultural practices as well as focusing on healing and building effective relationships.
7: For us in Hawaii, I think it's a real opportunity to do that here for like I said, with our diverse and unique gifts, our diverse and unique needs, um, our diverse and unique communities um, and cultures that we can really um, sculpt it to be very meaningful and effective um, to, to define what these standards look like for trauma-informed care here. The big hope is to really look at taking a deeper dive into why and how to address the disproportionate um, number of the dis. Representation of those who are Native Hawaiian, those who are Micronesian, that are represented, overrepresented in our systems, um, to improve the way that we respond to people suffering and struggling in our communities.
5: So, HeartSock is also interested in tackling the mental health care worker shortage, as well as fatigue and burnout um, that came to light during the pandemic.
0: So, it's, it's really about helping to build those skills in folks that may be fragile uh, and mm-hmm. helping, I guess to hone a, uh, an approach to dealing with these cases.
5: Absolutely, and it's more about sort of figuring out how to work with people and to make our social services stronger in the fact that we're able to talk to people, help them with the their underlying issues instead of sort of just putting a Band-Aid or other solutions. Right,
0: help them bounce back
5: mm-hmm. be more Teflon-like. Yeah, and the department, uh, the state has already allocated more than $800,000 from the state ledge to the department to get them going.
0: All right. Okay, well, thanks so much, Sabrina. Mm -hmm. We have been talking with HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden. You can read more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org.
4: I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. Trying to insult somebody into agreement is the stupidest thing you can possibly do. And yet our political discourse these days is built around insult. What's the solution? In the end, people want to love. Arthur Brooks, former head of the American Enterprise Institute, thinks we've got a contempt crisis and that love is the only way out. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio.
3: Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin... Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com.
0: This is the conversation on listener supported Hawaii Public Radio. Do any of your New Year's resolutions have you reaching for the stars? Well, HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips welcome the new year with the latest on souvenirs from Mars and tips for gardening on the moon. Here's your Monday Stargazer. <laughs>
8: Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet and also things we might be able to spot in our dark skies and we are so grateful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips who is a little knackered with a cold or something right now but he still has the uh, chutzpah as they say to come and join us on the show. Christopher, welcome back. What do you have for us this week and thank you so much for joining us. Hey Dave, good to be back. So this week, Stargazers, we begin the
9: new year with the planet Mars, which can be found in the south after sunset. The moon this week is approaching its full phase and will make stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens very challenging
8: indeed. Now as we bring in the new year, uh, Chris has a really cool thing he's decided to do. I guess it's kind of a little bonus because he's feeling generous over there. He's got a couple of cool stories to share with us today, and they really are cool, uh, especially if you're a fan of gardening that's one of them. But this other story, this is one of these kind of stories that we have talked about the front end of it for a while, and we still don't have the back end of it coming, but it's more on it. And that is basically, and I'm sure everybody's kind of excited about it, bringing back stuff from a place like Mars. What do you have for us? Yeah, so Two
9: fascinating ones, the first of which, as you said, a sample return mission from the planet Mars, where the Perseverance rover has successfully deposited a canister containing Martian soil at the first of several collection depots on the Red Planet. This canister
8: is tagged for collection in a future mission, in which the canister will be returned to the home world for study. Wow, that's exciting. Is there how many of these little collection sites or whatever are they? There's going to be a whole bunch, so Perseverance itself will deploy up to 17 of these canisters on its mission at the depot known as Three Forks. And I'm hoping, Chris, it's not like a lot of your stuff where they're going to be picked up like 3,000 years from now in the future. So <laughs> is, is this thing anywhere on our timeline? It is, although it's going to be a little longer
9: than, say, your standard UPS delivery. Right. The samples will be collected by a return mission in just
8: a few years' time. Until then, they are just going to hang out on the Martian surface. And uh, then we have this other really cool story. Now, being here in the islands, lots of people into gardening. I mean, you could be into gardening anywhere in the world. It's such a cool uh, release. And uh, this is an interesting topic on gardening. On the moon, basically, gardening in lunar soil? It is indeed. And in fact, scientists have successfully grown
9: earth plants in lunar regolith. The plants themselves are thale cress, or mouse ear cress, as it's also known. Lunar regolith covers the entire lunar surface, and this experiment is vital in developing our understanding of how to cultivate plants and food on the moon. Must have had a hard time, couldn't have been easy. Oh, it certainly wasn't. And the plants were incredibly stressed, but they did survive. This is the first time we have seen an Earth-based ecosystem, colonize what is essentially an alien planet. This bodes very well for the prospects of propagating life beyond our own Earth in the future.
8: And this is meaning they had this stuff from the moon in a lab here on Earth to do this? Oh yeah, it was brought back by the Apollo missions many decades ago. Well, there you go, it shows you don't leave stuff around, you never know what someone's going to do with it decades down the road. <laughs> Well, very good. It's exciting stuff, as always, from you, and uh, wishing you, obviously, a very happy and healthy new year and one filled with great stories that you'll share here on Stargazer. Thank you so much, Christopher Phillips. Happy New Year, Dave. And you too,
3: my brother. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, designing more than 2,000 projects since 1988 committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design ferrarochoy.com
0: time for your backyard quiz we thought about Honolulu's only female mayor a woman who defeated incumbent Frank Fossey with a 70% landslide victory in 1980 she grew up in California but after moving to Hawaii with her family graduated from the University of Hawaii at Manoa in 1950 after working for the Hawaiian telephone company she began her career in public service in various state agencies As mayor, she only served one term, during which she canceled the original Honolulu Area Rapid Transit project. It had been in the planning stages for years and would have run from Pearl City to Hawaii High with 21 stations over 23 miles of track. Her stated concern was the ongoing burden a rail project would have put on Honolulu taxpayers. Fossey won the mayor's office back in the 1984 election, and Anderson's uh, last uh, entry into politics came when she made an unsuccessful run for the Democratic Party's lieutenant governor nomination in 1986. Her name again was Eileen Anderson, the answer to today's backyard quiz. Anderson passed away in November uh, 2021 at the age of 93. And our winner today is a first-time winner, Kathleen from Honolulu. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
3: Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Tuesday, January 17th. More by searching Osher Hawaii.
5: The Splendid Table is coming to Hawaii Theater on January 18th. Explore Hawaii's food culture and cuisine with host Francis Lamb and special guests, including Maui chef Sheldon Simeon and James Beard Award winner Robin Mai'i. Get your tickets at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. Co-presented by HPR and the Culinary Institute of the Pacific. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets.
3: Support for HPR comes from Kona Stories Bookstore on Hawaii Island. Featuring live author events, in-person book clubs, and monthly story times for children. More information and schedule at konastories.com. Thank mm-hmm. you.
0: Big Island's Kuikahi Mediation Center will present a free in-person workshop this month titled Winning Edge Leadership for Women. It explores the differences between men and women when it comes to things like how to ask for a raise or lead a business team. The conversation Stephanie Hahn spoke with executive director Julie Mitchell and workshop facilitator Sylvia Dolina.
10: Mediation centers exist nationwide and even internationally Originally, they were designed for neighbors helping neighbors with different kind of disputes that they might be having with people that live nearby with them or with landlords, landlords and tenants and things like that. And they've evolved to help all sorts of issues from family issues like adult siblings who are arguing about how to care for elderly parents or couples who are separating and trying to figure out co-parenting to business issues like buyers and sellers of goods and services everything you could possibly imagine people might be having issues with one another about. And so what
6: is the importance of leadership when it comes to conflict?
10: Leadership training is extremely important in helping people resolve issues that matter to them. Teamwork and leadership and communication go hand-in-hand. Hand. How, how do leaders lead in such a way that we can manage conflict. You're not going to get rid of conflict. Conflict is a natural human condition. How do we work together to bring out great ideas in such a way that we can move forward together and hear all voices? Because leaders are not just president of the United States or the CEO of the company. There's leaders in families. There's leaders in small teams. And all of those folks need to be able to harness the power of the people with whom they are working.
6: Sylvia, can you tell me a little bit who this training is for? Is it for women who are already in leadership positions in business or for those who are seeking to enter this type of role?
2: Actually, it is for both. Those women that are already in leadership positions can benefit by learning new skills, by learning how to work with other women and mixed groups, And then women who are aspiring to be leaders, it will help them really understand what it takes to be a leader. And as they expand their training and their experience, they'll be more ready to step into leadership.
6: And what specific challenges do you think that women have that has prompted you to design this workshop for women?
2: There is a lot of bias in the workplace. There's a lot of conditioning that has been imposed upon women, and it is very subtle because we grow up with it, and it is mostly unfair to women. Uh, For example, here in the state of Hawaii, women earn $0.82 for every dollar that a man earns doing the same work, the same job. We really need to have women really understand how to navigate the workplace, and how to use many of their innate talents to step into leadership and to also show themselves up as leaders.
6: And can you think of how they might begin to rethink their agency within a workplace situation or within their personal lives?
2: Many women seem to lack confidence. The self-worth issue is very huge and prevalent because of conditioning from the time they're small children small girls so having that sense of confidence having that sense of well-being and that sense of I bring talents to the world I bring skills to the world and I'm confident in that, that will really help because then they show up differently they will show up as women who are capable and that's what women
6: really, really need. And Julie, what do you see that women can benefit from prior to entering mediation that could possibly be addressed in this workshop?
10: In any mediation, there are often subtle power differential issues. You can see that in employment. Situations where there's an employee and an employer, you know, there might be some power differential or one person has an attorney, the other person doesn't. Or if there's been any, any history in a divorce situation of any kind of abuse, one person might have this feeling that they don't have as much power as the other. And the great thing about in mediation is you have neutral third parties that try to help the parties to both have an equal voice. Particularly, there's a lot of studies done about in negotiation, whether it's in mediation, in the workplace, in the family, women are not as effective negotiators as men. So I think that this kind of training, a leadership training for women, will help build the confidence and the self-worth that Sylvia was talking about and have the ability to advocate more greatly for themselves, whether it's in mediation or any other type of situations where they need to or we need to speak out more powerfully to try to advocate for ourselves or others.
6: What might be one hint that you can tell our listeners out there that might inspire them potentially to enroll in your workshop?
2: When they believe that, that they are not as valuable as the other person, then they tend not to speak up for themselves. The one thing that women can do is list all of your talents, all of your skills, all of your capabilities, anything that comes to mind that you have learned or that you were born with. Look at it as an assessment and you will be amazed at how many things come up and how they stand back and look at it and say, whoa, well, you know, that's really good. They need to have a sense of who they really are and What they bring to the table because every woman has lots of skills and talents that they bring that sometimes they're not even
6: aware of. Gut instinct or intuition. Why are men's gut instincts often respected and women's intuition are often discounted?
2: A man has a feeling, it's a gut feel, so it comes from the gut and it's forceful. When women have An intuitive thought it's thought of as an emotion and women are considered emotional beings and both are valid and both are
6: typically correct how can women empower themselves within the workplace if there is a typical expectation that a woman will not speak up so then a woman goes in she does speak up but potentially she might be penalized for this too What is the different approach that she must take, or is it going to be identical to the approach that a man takes? And how can she then position herself to her best advantage?
2: The way I encourage women to do this, and it's over a long period of time, so it's not just, I'll start doing this today. A woman can start speaking to her experience when situations come up. Yes, I've encountered that situation before and in my experience then she can make the statement as a way that she was able to solve that problem or that issue or give insight to the current situation that's going on right now. She'll start building her credibility in having that experience. If something comes up as far as performance or anything like that, a woman's confidence to state very clearly and effectively, yes, I've seen this before and this is what I've done in the past and it was handled this way and this was the outcome. She can start speaking from facts and from her experience as if it was someone else. I I used to say, I used to go into a situation as a project manager and I'd have to sell myself. Well, I couldn't feel confident doing that at that time. So I used to sell myself as a team and I felt very confident selling myself as a team. Yes, my team can do this, my team can do that, my my team is very competent in this area. To speak to what their experience and their performance has been in the past will show that they are capable to handle something like that in the
6: future. Do you see a gender dynamic playing out within financial and contractual agreements?
10: We definitely have, in terms of our mediation clients, a pretty equal number of female and male mediation clients, that's for sure. And when you look at who tend to be attorneys, who tend to be business owners, it is still predominantly male that's changing. Sometimes it's the role which you know, it leads to a feeling of imbalance. The landlord is typically seen as having more power than the tenant, for example. And so if there's other gender roles or class roles or uh, ethnicities or even religion, you know, there can be people who are seen more in a typically more disadvantaged role, not because by nature of that class, but just because that's how society plays it out. When w- women advocate for others, they're very powerful negotiators. When, when it's about themselves, they are not as good as negotiators. We're not trained to negotiate our, for ourselves. You can see this in salary negotiations where men will ask for higher salaries and bigger bonuses and whatnot. And they'll get it because they asked, whereas women are less likely to toot their own horn. You know, there's a lot of socialization issues for that. It's not that women are inherently not able to do that. It's just that that's how we're trained. Number one, number two characteristics of all leaders is that they
2: walk in integrity and they're confident. That
0: was Julie Mitchell, uh, Kuikahi Mediation Center Executive Director and Facilitator uh, Sylvia Dolina talking with HVR Stephanie Hahn. They were discussing the free Winning Edge Leadership for Women in-person workshop coming up on Friday, January 13th. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from University of Hawaii President David Lassner. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.